in our meeting. And one of our first suggestions was Mrs. Amy Vasek, and we were so thankful for that. The first time I heard Amy was online. I had picked up a podcast of her speaking to a group of ladies in New Jersey. And I enjoyed that so well. I was all by myself. I had my earphones on and I was listening to it and I was laughing out loud all by myself. I'm sure I looked very silly, but it was a blessing to me. Then I had the privilege of hearing her at um, Metro Baptist Church, Mrs. Vaperzan's meeting, ladies meeting in December. And I so enjoy that. And our, our ladies have, and she was with us back in 2017. And we were so blessed. We were not disappointed one bit to have her with us. Um, Amy is the wife of Pastor Joe Vasek in Danbury, Connecticut. They have served the Lord in their church for 25 years. They, they started it just after they were married. So they've been there a long time ago. She doesn't look, she looks like she's about 16. So I don't know how you do that in negative years, but they, she did it. She's a very busy pastor's wife, and she's the mom of three adult children. Since she's been here last time, she's now formal, formally a mother-in-law, and we all know what that means. <laughs> so we want to welcome Mrs. Amy Vasek. Okay. Thank you. It's so great to be back here with all of you. I get very attached to people when I'm someplace, and like sometimes it can be a little creepy, you know? Like if, I don't know, maybe you're, you get to, I'm definitely not Spanish because, you know, it's, I never have anybody, you know, coming up and, and kissing on me like that. Most people are like, you're a little too Southern for all of us up here. I was born in Dothan, Alabama, and not sure if I said that last time. Any other Southern girls in here? crickets, <laughs> a few, a few. Um, so it's great to be back. I, I, I love Mrs. Brown, and of course I have lots of friends in the room, and, and it's so nice to reconnect with all of you. Um, I do have a, a few copies of my book in the back I don't think I mentioned to Mrs. Brown, and our family CD is back there. Don't underestimate the value of good music in your life and in your walk with the Lord. And I'm not saying our CD is, is the best you'll ever hear, but it is fantastic quality, and I've got some kids with some pretty amazing voices. And so we made a CD a few years ago, and it's back there. Uh, in fact, I want to give one away. If somebody could grab one of our CDs from the back table, I forgot to, thank you, I forgot to bring one up with me. And I'm so sorry, but I cannot involve one of the lady, a lady from this church, because you have to know about this. So I can't involve you in this, but if you're not from this church and you can raise your hand, you have to raise your hand and quickly tell me where is the heart located in the stone behind me? Right back here, Kim. Right over there. Have you noticed that? Isn't that the coolest thing ever? There's a heart stone right in there. Whoever has, oh, thank you. Um, can you, oh, Misty's going to get it for you, great. I, I'm a weird, like, person, and, like, you've figured that out already, I'm sure, but I, I am so into my surroundings. Last time I, when I was here, I was fascinated that there's a heart up there in the stone. Isn't that amazing? It's like it's never going to go away. It's in there. The love of God is here. It's, it's in the stone. It's incredible. How many of you have a, a sign or something that you look for in nature or something that reminds you how much God loves you? Anybody like that? A few people do that. I, when I see deer in nature, then I, that reminds me, oh, God loves me so much. He, you know, creation does exactly what God tells it to do. We're, we're the only part of creation that doesn't obey fully. But every animal, every part of creation obeys God fully. So when I see a deer, I think, God told that deer to come walking right by here, and that was just for me, and that validates me, and I love you too, God. But I also have another habit. When I hear of somebody else's God loves me sign, I take that one too. And so <laughs> I need lots of validation. And so a few years ago, my, one of my friends told me that seeing hearts places is her God loves me sign. And so now there is mine too when I see hearts. But I remember when I was here last, I took a picture and I sent it to her. And I said, oh my goodness, God was telling me today how much he loves you and I'm taking it too. So whenever I see hearts, it reminds me, who has a different one than that? And you'd be willing to share it. Yes. 
Clouds. Oh my goodness. Aren't, aren't clouds fascinating? I love anything, anything to do with clouds. I love the puffy ones. I love the thin ones. I love it when you see a cross in the clouds. Isn't that amazing? Everybody have a handout. I'm just chatting away until they get all passed out. A few are missing. Yes, you have a, a sign? Cardinals. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I love to see the cardinals against the white snow. We will still have them where we live. And, and uh, this, this winter, I think I've taken three pictures of card red cardinals against the white snow. It's beautiful. Anybody missing a handout or does it? Yes. Trees. Isn't that beautiful? Wow, that's wonderful. That's a great one. Anybody else? We could just do this the whole time. I would love that. Yes. Yes. Hawks? Oh. Wow. I have a friend, a very dear friend, whose sign is a red-tailed hawk. I'm like, do you got to be? I'm just like any deer, doe, buck, it doesn't matter. She's like, I want a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> I'm like, wow, God really has to be specific on that one. That's so, yes. What is it? Rainbows. Oh, I was looking for one here yesterday. We were looking for one because it had started to rain and then the sun came out. And uh, I love rainbows. And you know, it's so typical of things in life, but what the world has tried to do with that, they're never, they're never going to take it. It's God's sign. It is, God said, I will set my bow in the clouds. They're never going to take that from him. All right, everybody has a handout. We're going to get started. And uh, I thank you all for coming today. I know how hard it is to leave, uh, if you have small children, to leave those children in the care of very capable husbands or whoever is going to stay behind to watch them. And uh, my husband used to say when I would get home, we ate, everybody's still living, don't ask any questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now we're empty nesters, except my oldest brother just moved in with us. And uh, I basically have a fourth child <laughs> now. Don't tell him I said that. Um, but it's, it's been fun. It's been very interesting. My brother, I have two older brothers, and they were the favorites. We all knew it. My oldest brother is the number one favorite, and it went in this order. My, my oldest brother, my second brother, my sister, who's the baby, and then me. And my mom, my mom was pretty... Um, you know, we, it was a joke, but I knew she was pretty serious about it. She just loved her boys, and uh, typical Southern mom. But I was last, even though I'm third born, and my mom always told me it was that way because I could handle it. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But we had a good laugh, but I will tell you, my mom didn't leave a lot in this world when she went to heaven a couple of years ago. But guess who got all the family pictures? You're looking at her. So I tell all my siblings, yeah, I don't care what you got. You didn't get the irreplaceable photos. That's what I got. So they're all with me. And so I want to talk to you today a little bit about, I love this theme, joy in the journey. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how to have joy, but it might not be in the way that you think. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be here and be with these ladies and uh, Lord, you know, uh, all those pastor's wives who stood a little while ago, I just admire their love for you, their dedication, their labor, where they are. Lord, we're all just punching holes in the darkness where, where you've sent us. And I thank you to be on such a great team with, with so many ladies in these churches who uh, love you and, and want to get to know you more. And I pray that you'll be honored and glorified today in all that we say and do. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, how many of you love to sew? Like you are a serious seamstress. You can make what you wear. You're stronger than me. I can't pull this out. You, uh, you make what you wear or you can make curtains or you've reupholstered things. Anybody like that? A few. Okay, that's not me. <laughs> I, can sew, I can sew a straight line. I can sew buttons on. I can hem things, things like that. But I'm not a seamstress. Sometimes I really wish I could, I could do it because I, you know, it's hard to find stuff in the store sometimes, right? That's exactly what you want. And I always think, boy, if I could make that, then life would be easier. But one thing I do use regularly if I'm just sewing on buttons or sewing a, sewing a hem 
is this little thing, and I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but it's a needle threader. Anybody else have to use that? When I was younger, I could just put it right through there. You know, you lick it and then stick it right through there. And now, you know, I have to wear glasses, and I still can't, you know, get it through the eye of the needle. And, and uh, so I use one of these little things, and it really helps me focus on the eye of that needle so I can thread it through properly and make things easier, uh, make the project that I have to do easier. I've tried, I've seen online where you could take the little needle and rub it back and forth on the thread. Has anybody ever tried that? Does it work for you? I can't get it to work either. And I think, my goodness, it looks so easy when they're just rubbing it like that. But it's quicker just to use a needle threader. It helps you focus and helps you align with what you're doing in a, in a better way, makes the job easier. And it helps you to really thread that needle without thinking about all the other things that are inhibiting that. You know, Jesus Christ is our example in all things. Uh, we are supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's God's design. He's, he, we're supposed to look at his life and look at the way he handled situations and things and say, you know what? He relied on God like this, so I'm going to rely on God like this. He did this with his life, so I'm supposed to do this with my life. He is our example in all things. And the Bible says that in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, and you have that verse there on your outline, so I'd like for you to read it with me, please, or you can open up your Bible and read it. But let's read that together. Ready? It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. Now, you know, it's true that we're all on a journey and we are supposed to have joy in that journey. We're, none of us are supposed to live like the Christian life is just the worst thing that could have ever happened to us. I remember a few years ago, a man got saved in our church, and he got saved out of a very wicked lifestyle. And he went through a time of depression um, that was very dark and deep because what plagued him was, how did I not hear about this when I was a child? And then it could have saved me a life of, of living with the messes I've made and the heartache and the, and the really horrible nature of my life. And so after he got saved, he began to tell people, if you're going to come to know the Lord, you better know what you're doing. It is going to take a downhill spiral real quick. Of course, your eternity is secure, but <laughs> you're going to have a tough time with things right away. And I remember one day I looked at him and I said, you know what? Can you take a little hiatus from witnessing to people? <laughs> Can you just take a break because you're so down on it? Because, you know, it's, it was his story, and it was what happened, and it did take him a little while before he understood, you know what, I did hear about it when I did, and praise the Lord for that. And everything that came in my package, is, God is going to do something with that. And it, but it took him a while to get there. But I remember telling him the Christian life, being a Christian, is wonderful from second one. Because you know why? Because you're not doing it alone anymore. You're never going to be, no matter what hard times come your way, you'll never go through it alone anymore. Before you met the Lord, you were alone. Even if you had friends and money and everything, you were still going at it alone because you had no one living inside of you to help guide you. After you got saved, never alone again. And you might end up broke and friendless and all of those terrible things for a time because that might be the nature of how your story has gone. But you won't be going through tough times alone. As a woman, as a mother, you probably, like I did, your mother probably said some things to you. Like I remember when I was a kid, I would ask my mom, you know, what can I get you for your birthday? What do you want for Christmas? And my mom would always say one thing, and I bet your mom said the same thing, or maybe you have said it, and that one thing is, I just want you and your brothers and sister to get along. <laughs> wow. See, I'm not alone. <laughs> 
I just want you to get along, you know, and I remember thinking, oh my goodness, why don't you tell me I, I want a new pot or whatever, you know, give me something I can actually do. But I want you all to get along. As an older woman, as a woman nearing the end of her life, I can tell you honestly, my, those of you who were here before, you've heard my testimony or maybe at other places, my dad was a preacher who left our family when I was nine years old. So after that, my mom became a single mom of four and just got very focused on raising her children. But the one thing that she wanted to know when, she, when it was time for her to go to heaven, she wanted to know that her children were getting along. That was everything to her, everything. It didn't matter that she, whatever else she wasn't leaving behind or whatever else she had accomplished or not accomplished in her life, she wanted to know her children were getting along, that they had a relationship. And you know, I think that's the way it is for most women. When we get to be older, we want to know that the people that we are leaving behind, whether they are our children or somebody we've influenced, we want to know that they're okay they're going to be okay. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, there's a verse near the end of the chapter, and it says, her children arise up and call her blessed. Now, many times we, we do associate that with the end of a woman's life because I think, number one, it's at the end of that chapter, Proverbs 31. Although I will tell you that the more I investigate Proverbs 31 and I understand that I believe Lemuel in that chapter is Solomon, so I believe that his mother, the words that his mother taught him, I believe that is Bathsheba instructing her son. But I believe this Proverbs 31 woman that we've labeled her as one woman, I think she's a composite of women that over the course of their lives, they did these things. I'm just telling you, I read the chapter and I get worn out. I'm like... I can't even do three of these things in, in my one existence here. How did she do all of this? I think these are examples of the kind of woman that Bathsheba wanted her son to find. Look for this. Look for that. This is a great woman. This is the kind of woman who will be good to you. This is the kind of woman that, that uh, we need to honor. She's far above rubies. And then her children will arise up and call her blessed. Now, let me ask you a question. How do her children know in a time of grief, which is when we most associate the end of Proverbs 31 with, in a, in a time when they're grieving the loss of the person that they want to call blessed, they were blessed to have her, she was a blessing to them, how do they know how to arise up? It's because they've had someone to show them. They've had a mom a lady, a teacher, an aunt, a grandmother, somebody that showed those children how to arise up. You know, so many times we misquote verses in the Bible and we say, her children rise up and call her blessed. And it's not rise up, it's arise. And there is a reason that word is worded the way it is. If our children, if the next generation is going to know how to rise up in the face of the onslaught of all that is coming their way in our society and our culture today, it's because someone has to show them. It will be, if they can do it, it is due to the fact that someone has shown them how to arise up. So what is supposed to be our focus to help us thread that needle of the joy that is set before us. One day we want to look back and say, you know what? I can go to heaven a happy woman because those coming behind me get it. Those coming behind me are going to be okay. That's my joy. That's what's going to give me joy when I know it's time for me to meet my Savior face to face. I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, they get it. So what are some things that I need to focus on to help me thread that needle? Staying focused on helping those who come behind me to arise up. Number one, I, need, I must teach the next generation to arise up in their marriage. The home is being attacked and has been attacked. I, I really believe it started after World War II. I believe that the greatest generation came home from a war they didn't want to talk about. And I understand that. 
not, I, I can't fully understand, but I, I, can, I can see why they wouldn't want to talk about it. But they came home from that war, did not want to talk about it, and they raised the Woodstock generation. And because things were not discussed, and no one told them, hey, you're going to have hard times in life, we had a generation of parents who were the greatest generation, but took their hands off of childbearing. They just went to work every day. And they, they no longer wanted to sit and discuss. Yes, they would come home and they would ask Susie and Johnny, how was your day at school? And they were great people in personal character and integrity. But because they wouldn't talk about what they had been through, that next generation said it has no value. Because that next generation of baby boomers talked a lot. And they wanted to hash out things. Now, that is a little bit above my pay grade. I'm not quite there. I turned 49 this year. But I've read history and talked to people and, and tried to investigate where was the ball dropped. And as far as I can tell, in our society, that's where it happened. But you know what? I can't do anything about history in America and what happened to our families. But I can sit with those around my table and say, we are going to talk and I'm going to tell my, my children, hey, marriage isn't a cakewalk. <laughs> marriage is something that you don't go into thinking, he's going to do all this stuff for me the rest of my life, and we're just going to have bliss every day, 24-7. You and I both know it's hard work. And it's not hard work on, I've got to figure out how to get this man to be what I need. The hard work is on me. <laughs> What do I need to do? Your example there is Eve. The Bible says in Genesis 3.20, I know what you're thinking. Eve, oh my word, she sent us all down the tubes. But Genesis 3.20 says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I'm going to say something here, and I, I don't want you to throw tomatoes at me just yet, but you know you won't find the word help meet in the Bible. Now, right away I can hear, and I heard somebody, what? <laughs> you won't find it in the Bible because there is no word help meet in the Bible. It is a two-word phrase, and God designed it that way because help meet, along with so many other things that we've just lumped in together, allows us to give it a title, and then we get to make up our own definitions about what a help meet is. Oh, I'm, I'm his help meet, so I can fit in this little box, and as long as I do one, two, and three, then I'm good to go. The word help means to aid. To aid. The word meet the, the mental picture of the word meat is like a dovetail drawer. Have you ever opened up your drawers of good furniture at home? Not stuff from Ikea that you put together yourself. But if you have a good piece of furniture at home and you see those dovetail drawers, do you know you can't put the sides of those drawers together and be off? They have to meet together. One side has to be sufficient to the other side or the integrity of that piece of furniture will not hold up over time. It is my job to be a help and aid up to the challenge of what Joe Vasek needs. That, allows, that doesn't allow me to just put a little label on myself. It's, help me is not a title. It is a pattern designed by God. I will make him and help meet for him. That phrase is only found twice in the Bible. And that is when God realized Adam didn't have one, and then he looked through all the animals and couldn't find one. Those were in Genesis 2, 18 and 20. After that, God says, I'm going to make woman, and he and Adam both call her woman. Later on in chapter 3 is the first time the word wife is used. And after that, you won't find help meet anymore in the Bible. It's wife. Wife, what a wonderful word. When my husband stepped on a sea urchin off the coast of Rhode Island nine years ago, I did not know that wife or help meet would also mean 
a nurse that changes his bandages every day, and I still do. My husband walks with an open wound on the bottom of his left foot, and I know all the oils and all the skin treatments and all of that. We've been to multiple wound care centers and doctors who've all looked at my husband. One doctor in particular said, you and your foot are the bane of my existence. And that was the last time we went in there. I said, I will not have a man treating my most prized possession on this earth and telling him such defeating news. So we did not go back. But I have had two doctors in two different wound care centers ask me to show their nurses how I bandage because their bandages fall off or they slip off and the next time they come back, it's not secure. And I've never had any medical training. I've, I don't, I've never had any nursing training, never. But my role in help an aid that's up to the challenge meant I had to learn some things. I had to research medications. I had to find out, I don't care that that doctor said, this is good for you, it's not. <laughs> and we're gonna try these supplements. My husband is now on zero medications, but 22 supplements. And you know what? This brain had to learn how to get real good and understand and ask questions. And that's, that's what marriage is. You have, sometimes you have to arise up in your marriage. I used to be one of those wives that said, oh, men are such babies when they're sick. You know what? After I've seen what my husband has suffered <laughs> and nearly losing his life on multiple occasions and, and going through all of this and walking with pain and hurts, he can suffer all he needs to. He can whine all he needs to. I will gladly take care of him. And I will gladly be up to the challenge of what that means for me. If it means sleeping in the living room because he's got to be in the recliner on a certain night, couch is comfortable. I'm fine. If it means staying in the hospital room with him, you better believe I'm there. Because that's what wife is. You know, when Adam and Eve came back together, I love it that Adam named Eve because he said she's the mother of all living. When he named her that, she had not yet had a child. But he had such hope for their future. And he said, I don't care what we've been through. I don't care how we've struggled. This is my Eve. And I'm with her. She's going to be the mother of all living. How encouraging is that? doesn't matter what you and I face. There are, are there some things that would make us run out of the room? Sure. But when you make a commitment on a platform like this and you say, God, I promise I will be an aid that is up to the challenge, we've got to hang in there and do it. Those who come behind us, they need to know how to arise up in those tough situations. They need to be shown that. And it's in our power to do it. Next, teach the next generation to arise up in their relationships. One of my favorite Bible characters is a lady named, well, she's actually Ruth's other mother-in-law, and her name was Rahab. And we always talk about Ruth's mother-in-law as Naomi, but Ruth had another mother-in-law, and that was Boaz's mother, Rahab. And the Bible says, you see the verse there, and that verse is in Matthew, Matthew 1, 5, and Salmon bat Boaz, that's the new, begat Boaz, that's the New Testament word for Boaz, of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. Of course, their Old Testament names are Boaz and Rahab. But can you imagine, Rahab is in her little apartment on the wall in Jericho, and there's these two strange men that are coming in, and of course, she thinks they're there because of her profession, and so she's looking to, uh, you know, make a buck off these men, but they tell her, no, 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 we're not here for that. <laughs> we're just here to find out how to destroy your city. Oh, okay, <laughs> come on in, and so she hides them, and uh, now the Bible does not say this. I have to tell you that up front. The Bible does not say this, but you know, I just love a good romantic story, and I really believe that Salmon was one of those two spies. I've read some Jewish history, and I've talked to a few Jewish people, and they actually claim that. Is anybody Jewish in here? Or your, your lineages? Your, nobody? Um, they, they actually claim that, that he was one of the two spies. I don't know that we'll get to... That's one of those things we're going to watch on high def when we get to heaven. I, I don't know that that's how it went or not. But we do know that Salmon was Jewish. Rahab was not. 
And so he marries her, brings her into his world, introduces her to, to his God. Well, the spies had introduced her, and she said, you know, save me, save my family when you come back, and they did. And then they give birth to this son named Boaz. Now, Boaz then would have been a mixture of two different races of people. Haven't you ever wondered why Boaz was still single? Again, I could be reading into this. I'm guilty of that a lot. But you get the idea from reading the Bible that Boaz was a handsome guy. I mean, Ruth didn't say, you know, what, Naomi? Eh, no, I would never go be. No, she wanted to tell me more. <laughs> tell me more, Naomi. <laughs> tell me about this man. And so Naomi would talk to her and tell her how to win him over. I mean, he must not have been too hard to look at. And we know he had money. Why wasn't he married? I wonder if some of those little Jewish girls looked at him and said, you know what? Your mom's not one of us. You're out. Your mom's not like us. But you know what that meant for Ruth when she came along? Because Boaz had had a lady show him how to arise up and say, no, I'm going to accept this girl. She may not be exactly like me, but I'm really not exactly like anybody else around here either. So I'm going to take what my mom has taught me about her transformation and how she has walked into this life, and I'm going to accept Ruth and all that she brings. And look what came from that. They sang about it a little while ago. And she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Both those women, pretty amazing stuff. Teach them how to arise up in their relationships. By the way, you know, one of the things that happens in families is strains of in-law relationships. And I can tell you this. No, I haven't been at it very long. But do you know when a, re a good relationship with your in-laws starts? When your kids are little. I know a lot of, lot of mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law who struggle because that little boy grew up and filled that young lady in on some stories. And before that young lady ever met that future mother-in-law, she had in her mind, I know this woman. I know what she did to him. And those of you, who, how many of you are moms of young boys, baby boys, 10 or, 10 or younger? That's a lot of you. Think about that. When you raise that little boy and you fly off the handle and scare him half to death, that's a future story that's going to give somebody a preconceived notion about you. If you send him to bed without supper just because you got aggravated that he spilled something at the table or did something inconsequential but you got angry, that's a future story and that's a, that's a uh, determining story in somebody's mind about you before they even meet you. We've got to get back to where loving people includes our families. So many people are gracious to those little Sunday school children. And then when they walk in their own doors, it's you better toe this line or else. Those are future determining factors for your in-laws. And we want to say in love and mean it. I have a son in love. Now, he, he was very young when he came to our church, and so I was pretty much, you know, I wasn't just his pastor's wife. I was, he was at our house a lot. But I have two younger children who have introduced new people into our family. I don't know for sure where it's all going to go, but one thing I do know, I want those young people to take me at face value, not at the horror stories they've had to hear. We've got to teach them to arise up in their relationships. Number three, teach them to arise up in their future. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. In the late 1800s, there was a little lady that lived on Foggintown Road in Brewster, New York. And one day, her daughter came home. Her daughter was married, and she and her husband lived with, with her mother. But she came home, and she said, I'm going to have a little baby. And they were so excited. 
And when that baby was just a few weeks old, she had a really high fever, and a, a doctor came through. And uh, town legend says the doctor was really uh, old and, and starting to wane in his, in his uh, ability to reason and make decisions and give good treatment. And he made a poultice and put it on that baby girl's eyes, and it blinded her. He did not intend to do that, but it blinded her. And it wasn't too long before they became very destitute. The dad passed away, and the mom had to go work as a maid in another house in the next town over. And so this little grandmother raises this little baby girl all on her own. And, you know, we're in a society today where there are three generational households. It's very common. And grandmothers are called upon to raise children. But this grandmother took it very seriously. And she told this little blind girl as she was growing up, it's not an accident that you are the way you are. God has a plan for you. When that little girl was just eight years old, she wrote this poem. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. My father was blind from birth. And I met, I believe it's Laura down here. Lisa? Some, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn. Sorry, Lynn. Lynn was also blind from birth. How many of you know somebody or something, or a person who was born blind or became blind? Older? That's a few of us. You know, when my dad was born, they, even at that age, he was born in 1940, at that uh, year in our history, they still called them throwbacks. They were thought of as useless people. And I don't know if you've been able to nail down who this baby girl was that I'm talking about, but of course it's Fanny Crosby, born five miles from my home in Brewster, New York. What an amazing woman. Knew 17 presidents. Talked with them. They sought her counsel. And of course, the hymns that we sing in our churches every week. I would imagine you sang one here at least in the last month, maybe more. What an impact she made on this world. But it was a grandmother who taught her how to rise up and think of her future. We've got to give that hope to the generation coming behind us. There is a future for you. There is a way for you. Do you know millennials are some of the smartest people, really, that you will ever meet in your whole life? I've raised three millennials. <laughs> that sounds weird to say, doesn't it? But they baffle me with their intellect and what they think. And you know, there are millennials in our churches that they have the same sort of mindset that their age group brings, which is, I want to make a difference in this world, but I don't really know how to do it. <laughs> but if you could tap into that resource and give them a hope for what they could do for Jesus Christ in their futures, what an impact they could make in this world. My husband has always believed that our family, and specifically our children and the raising of them, was his first ministry. Everything else is a bonus. And we have children that to the glory of God and to the credit of his grace in our lives, they want to serve him. They are world changers. But somebody cared enough to focus on that and give them a shot at it. But think about all the people in this world that are coming out of universities and they're like slinkies because they're wound up. They want to do something. But all they know how to do is keep making these incredibly dumb statements. But it's, it's misguided, but it is not without remedy. We could help them. We could give them a chance. Boy, I have to fly. Next, number four. Next, teach them to arise up in their faith. Hebrews 11, 11, 11 says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. We have a generation of young people coming behind us who have not been taught to search the scriptures on their own and find out what they really believe. 
I have never had one moment of fear that my children would pick up this book and read it and say, hmm, I don't know if I agree with mom or dad about that because when I'm reading this, something else is jumping out at me. Or I, I see something else here in this book. You know why? Because this is a living, breathing book and God can certainly speak to anybody about anything he chooses to. We have encouraged our children from the time they were little, search it for yourself. You've got to have a personal connection with your God. It's not enough that we have one. It's not enough that we've convinced you we have one. You've got to have it for yourself. I've never been afraid for them to open this and search it on their own. Sarah rose up in her faith. Think about this, and I'm not going to be you know, two, and I'm, I'm glad the girls are gone, but, but think about this. Sarah was an older lady, and this was not a Mary situation. Isaac was not conceived immaculately, and <laughs> I mean, Sarah had to put actions to her faith. Can I say that? She, she had to put some actions to her faith, and you know what? Yeah, she laughed about it. She even came up with an alternate scheme of how to make it happen, but she still had to do her part to bring about God's promise in their lives. And you know, even when Sarah blundered and made, made mistakes, she did it in, in the direction of her faith. I know that sounds crazy, but it was because she believed God really meant what he said. And yeah, not a perfect person, but neither am I. And yet, we look at her because she's in the Hall of Faith chapter. What an example. Next, in service. Teach them to arise up in their service. We do have a generation of young people who are coming up behind us. And like it or not, everybody does the math on their parents. I did the math on my parents. I, you know, I, had, some, I had a mom who was the most godly woman I've ever met in my life, and I had a dad who struggled. And struggled so hard that he couldn't stay tied to our family. I did the math on my parents. My kids have done the math on us and are still in the process of doing it on us. If things don't add up, you know what? They're going to say, man, we sat in those pews every week of our lives for decades, and yet we'd get home and things were not how we made them appear to be. Things were not what we were taught to be behind the pulpit. And so, you know what? I'm out. I'm, I, this math isn't adding up, and so I'm out. And you know what? We not only miss their presence in the pews, they're not serving the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 100, verse 2. Come before his presence with singing. Serve the Lord with gladness is the motto my husband and I chose in the early days of our ministry. It's a good thing to serve the Lord. No matter what he asks you to do, it's a good thing, and I can gladly do it. Our example there is a lady named Sarah Edwards. You probably are better familiar with her husband, Jonathan Edwards. He's most famous for preaching a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he got famous for that because people would literally hold on to the pillars in the auditorium for fear that they would fall into hell. But you know what was interesting about Jonathan Edwards? He was not a fiery, bombastic preacher. He would stand there and read his sermons in a monotone voice. It was the Holy Spirit of God that was affecting their hearts. But do you know what Jonathan Edwards said about his wife, Sarah? And you got to think, this was a long time ago, just after the, after the revolution of this country. Jonathan Edwards said about his wife, if I'm not available to counsel, I will often recommend that husbands and wives meet with my wife. Because my wife, Sarah, is the smartest woman I know and knows the scriptures better than any man. And he gave that to her if he could not do it himself. Now, I'm not telling you, look, I'll be counseling in my husband's office next week. Let's all line up. No, I don't, I'm not going to counsel men. I, don't, I personally don't feel that that's the job I'm supposed to be doing. However, that was how Sarah helped her husband serve the Lord. And he loved her for it. And he valued her in it. 
She's got to be our example on how to rise up. When you teach your Sunday school class, do you print out the lesson Sunday morning? And you say, oh, this is good. Do you walk into class five minutes after all the children have arrived? Are you there early and ready and prepared? We've got to show them what, that the, it's important, that serving the Lord is important, and we should do it with gladness. Next, number six, prayer. How do I rise up in prayer? Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In Galveston, Texas, on October 15, 1939, a little girl was born into the home of two alcoholics and an abusive stepfather. And this little girl endured hardness in her life that is unimaginable, unthinkable. And when she got to be 17 years of age, she left home and said, there's got to be a better way to live than this, and I'm going to find it. At 21 years of age, she was married with a baby, and she was sitting in her living room, and a knock came on the door. And it was a southern pastor in Jessup, Georgia. And his name was Brother Geiger. And Brother Geiger knocked on that door and introduced that young couple to Jesus Christ. And when my mom sat there on her couch and realized this is it, she got plugged in from day one. And once she had that resource, she never went without it. She's the greatest prayer warrior I've ever known. The one thing, I miss being able to call my mom and talk with her and share stories, but the thing I miss most about my mom is being able to say, Mom, I need some prayer. Because I know she would hit her knees for me. The reason I'm standing here before you today is because of the prayers of my mom. She was a prayer warrior. She fought battles on her knees. I want to be that. I want to be that for those who come behind me. I want them to know when you ask her to pray, she will. And she'll ask you about it. And you know she's going to be praying about it. You know, how many times do we, on somebody's Facebook post, praying, sending prayers up. And I'm not against those things, but do you do it? I put essential prayer requests on post-it notes on my dryer because I'm there a lot. Because, yeah, I don't iron everything, okay? I throw it in the dryer. (laughs) And so I'll put post-it notes there because I'm there often. And I pray for those urgent requests. And, And, of course, other places, too. And write them down on lists. But, you know, don't say you'll pray and then don't. It becomes evident after a while. We want, as Christians, we are tied into the greatest resource of strength that's ever been known. And we've got to keep our word about praying and taking things to him. And lastly, number seven, teach them to arise up for their country. Judges 5, 7 says, The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose. That I arose a mother. In Israel. Isn't that interesting how Deborah labeled herself? I'm just a mom. Now, the Bible calls her a prophetess, and it says that God gave her certain things to say, but she thought of herself as a mom. I'm just Deborah. I'm a mom like you. But when I arose, it gave other people strength to do what God wanted them to do, too. A couple of weeks ago, our family went to Capital Connection, which is a ministry organized by Awake America so that pastors can connect with their congressmen, senators, and women on Capitol Hill. And we requested to get into the office of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. My husband thought I was nuts for wanting to do it. And I said to him from day one, I said, you may be the only person to have ever entered that office that could offer prayer. If you, how many of you know who AOC is? I mean, she's like the hottest thing going right now in Washington, D.C. I wanted our children to be in that office and not be afraid. We're Christians. We're Christians. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We walked in her office. She was not there that day, but we met with her staff. And do you know what? They did not refuse prayer. They welcomed it. My husband said to her personal assistant there, do you have a need that we can pray for with about you, about for you? 
And he said, just, you know, the stress. This, this office is stressful. He prayed in her office. Man, that's exciting stuff. I hope we've passed on to our children, you know, love your country. <laughs> Care about it. Pray for those in office. I've started a Facebook page for it, American Prayer Band. And if you're a part of that, how many of you in this room are already a part of that? A few. You know all we do is pray. It's not negative. It's not pointing out where we're going wrong. It's prayer. And I think that's important. It's important to teach them to arise up for our country. Almost finished. We have more ways to communicate than humanity has ever had, and yet we have far less meaningful communication than previous generations. We have more avenues to gain knowledge than history has ever known, and yet society as a whole is increasingly without the wisdom needed to live productively. We have more gadgets and technology deemed necessary to make our lives easier, and yet we deal in complications that would make our ancestors' heads swim in disbelief. We have more ways to get our beliefs and opinions out there, and yet all of humanity still screams for acceptance and validation. We can connect with someone on the other side of the world in a moment, and yet we go for days without truly connecting with those under our own roof. We pack our schedules so full of trivial things we think we must do, and yet we wonder why our spiritual walk is depleted. We have the Bible in multiple printed and electronic forms, and yet it is far more removed from our society than it has ever been. We have better financial means than any preceding generation, and yet we have very little meaningful happiness or security. We have built our homes with larger bedrooms to accommodate isolation, rarely used spaces intended for gathering, and we wonder why families are collapsing. We have installed televisions in every room to ensure that we won't waste five minutes of potential entertainment, and yet we are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion. We have an estimated one million words in the English language. Yet despite all of the beautiful, expressive, meaningful words we have at our disposal, we use the basest ones to tell people off, slice them up, or convey what we really think. We have left the education of our children up to others because we feel inept, not really realizing there are philosophies about life, family, faith, and country that we have a duty to pass down to them. We allow our own behavior to stay somewhere at the level of just above felon, yet we expect everyone else to be guided by the Sermon on the Mount, and if they don't, they're going to pay for it. We have become a society that thinks of God as a credit card, a lucky rabbit's foot that we pull out when we're in a jam, and yet we wonder where he is when we need him. If we don't take the time as people who have the truth, as women who have the truth of what God has to give, how is the next generation ever going to know how to arise up? And I will say this, it's not about calling you and me blessed. That just happens. It's about that first part of that verse, what we're supposed to focus on, threading that needle of teaching them to arise up. Thank you.